This is the Purpose Church Podcast. We exist to help every person live on purpose. It is our prayer that this message helps you experience God in a brand new way. Amen. Well, I'm so glad you are here today. I'm excited to jump into part four of Perfectly Designed. Today is one of my favorite topics, and not because it's that of sexuality. By the way, we sent out a warning. It's not going to get graphic. You know, I just respect your rights as parents for your children to have those conversations with you. Um, So excited to talk about today's topic because largely what we think about the world is informed by what we think about sex. And so I love reading books about worldview stuff. I love listening to podcasts about our sexuality and and even the the culture war that's going on about how the culture says, hey, you find your identity within your sexuality. And the core of that is really sexual freedom. I love learning about it, reading about it. This is just a few suggestions for you. (laughs) If you uh, are curious of any of the things, um, this one is called Mama Bear Apologetics. It's great. She, there are a few of these. This one is a guide to sexuality. So if you're wanting more resources on like how to talk to your kids with this, it says mama bear, but I think it should be for parent bears, like all the bears, mama bear, papa bear. I think it's for you too. This book has been really, really good. And if you ever doubted just how much of a nerd I am, I just want to settle the debate in your mind that you probably haven't had. Nobody's thought about it. There's been one other book that I actually read the notes at the back of the book. Like I'll read the, the beginning of it. I'll read all, I will read all of it. And Landon's like, wow, that's, that's intense. Just jumping at chapter one. I was like, no, I got to know the beforehand. And anyway, I read the notes in one of John Mark Comer's books and they were so funny. Like his own thoughts in the book, they were hilarious. It was like comedy to me. Patrick, you're nodding your head. Patrick read it. If anybody, I would think that they were so funny, right? And then I thought, I've been missing out. I'm not reading the notes in the back of the book. And so I was going through this book and I wanted to share one with you because I thought it was so funny slash interesting. Starts off funny, and then it's like, oh. But her note here, their note, was co-authored. Chapter 10, the title of chapter 10 is Same-Sex Attraction. Number one, her first note here, it says, there are still churches fighting to remain orthodox regarding this issue, but the culture is not on their side. And another side note, for those feisty enough to look at the end notes, I was like, that's me. She... I was like, thank you, Hillary and Amy. I am just that feisty. That's why. That's why. She said, for those feisty enough to look at the end notes, the next big ones are polyamory and then pedophilia. Gird your loins, mama bears. It's a coming. And so if you haven't heard those words yet, like this is what's coming down the pike for us. And so we need to be aware on how to have these conversations with our kids, and I think that this is a great resource. This is also a great resource if anybody would like to lead a small group like from this book with a group of moms and or dads, parents, this would be a great small group to do. And then also, this one is called, How Now Shall We Live? My conclusion is this question. In light of the gospel, and in light of the, the cultural world we live in, how now shall we live? What do, how do we live in response, especially in regards to our sexuality? And we were wrapping up our last small group last week at our house, and the McLeods come to our group. And Keith McLeod, where you at, guy? I see you there in the middle. Keith McLeod was like, hey, can I uh, take a picture of your Bible? Because I wanted to order one. And we were talking about the, the um, concordance in the back and all the footnotes and things. And I go, sure. And this was on top of it. I go, also, while you're at it, uh, I recommend this book. And he goes, oh, what's this? And he opened it. And the first chapter is set, or the, like to where my bookmark was, it's sex. Does it liberate? He goes, okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> Gets here Tuesday, he said. That's hilarious. Well, what I hope to accomplish with our time today is to help you understand God's picture for your sexuality. The truth is that we are all born with a sexuality. Because we are born human, we are born with a sexuality. And because God designed our sexuality and God designed sex, God has a picture, a vision for what our sexuality should look like. 
If I were to ask you, and also, by the way, this message is not for married people to have better sex. It should help, but it's not about that. You can also come to the marriage conference. That will help too. This isn't for single people how to be pure. This isn't for young people, for old people. This is for people because people have sexuality. It is a, it is a part of our design. And because God designed us with the sexuality, it is important that we have a biblically informed worldview about our sexuality. If God designed it, it's God's gift to us. It's part of our world. We need to understand what does God's word say about our sexuality? I am not able to go to Walmart and buy a nuke because they are too dangerous. They, they contain too much power within them. They, they are in a special place, specially protected. Uh, there's not gonna be a, a, a big bomb sitting in our living rooms because that would be dangerous. And yet we have this idea of sexuality that is a weighty thing that can create an entire human being from scratch. It's not a small thing. It's a weighty thing. It has power to it. And in fact, I think that it's because of all of the sexual brokenness in our world all, all of the awful things in society that grieve our hearts comes from sexual brokenness. It's probably true for all of us. All of the things that have been awful in our lives somehow is connected to sexual brokenness somewhere along the line. Most of society's problems could be solved through good parenting. But good parenting is difficult to do with babies being born out of wedlock and all of the situations that come from that. It comes back to sexual brokenness. So it's important that we understand a, a biblical worldview for our sexuality because it really, really matters. And when we don't get it right, and, and perfection's not the goal, but when we don't get it right, when we don't have a, the right picture for our sexuality, brokenness and pain and divorce or abortion or, or children in foster homes, all of the ripple effect comes from us not understanding how to handle something as weighty as sexuality. And interestingly, the world says, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. It creates human beings. Like, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And at the same time, the world says it's not a big deal. They also say, but yet this is how you find your identity, that, that your identity is found at the core of your sexuality. So is it a big deal or is it not a big deal? It is a big deal. It's important, but it's also God's idea. I am grateful that I grew up in church. I am grateful that I grew up with a biblical worldview about my sexuality. And I feel like because of that, I was able to avoid a lot of the pain and suffering that other people my age had dealt with. So I'm grateful for that. I'm also a victim of purity culture. Where are my survivors at? If you don't know what that is, we can just take a 30 minute or 30 second, 30 minute. Just kidding. 30 second praise break and you can thank the Lord for that. Because it wasn't all great, even the teaching within the church. There have been some things that have had to be adjusted to be accurately biblically informed. And part of purity culture would say, hey, once you get married, all these issues go away. <laughs> so the survivors of purity culture, no, that's not true. Cause like we're married now and we're like, hey, y'all told us. <laughs> so even when you do things well and you do things that are biblically informed and you have, a, you have God's vision for it, pain can still be involved. There can still be suffering. There can still be abuse. There can still be heartache. It doesn't make it perfect. So we, we all are dealing with sexual brokenness in our lives, either from our past, maybe something that we are living out now, but we need a biblically informed sexuality. And I want to help make this really practical and simple for us today so that we can have a clear picture of what that looks like. Because if we don't have a clear picture, we don't know what we're moving towards. So if I were to say, hey, what's a great sex life? And would you be like, oh, well, are we going to quantify it? Does that mean it's three times a week? Shall it be five? Is it one? Like, what does that look like? We don't always, even within the church, have, I know, you want the answer. You're not going to get it. I'll just disappoint you right off the bat. But God does have a picture for us as to how we can flourish as human beings within our sexuality, single or married. Because God designed sex, he gets to define the boundaries around it. He designed it, he defines it. Because a lot of this comes down to asking that question of who has the authority 
to define it. It comes down to an authority question. And today's message is another building block on on the previous messages. Today's message is dependent upon the previous messages where we've talked about truth, we've talked about worldview, we've talked about um, God created us, God spoke the earth into existence. We are made in God's likeness. God made us male and female. God made us for a purpose and with a purpose. So this message is building on all of those things. So if you've missed any parts of them, you can go back and listen to them because this really requires those messages as a foundation. So God designed sex. In fact, there's an entire book in the Bible about sex. It's called Song of Solomon. It has more commentary written on that book of the Bible than any other book. And and of all the books that could be part of the canon of scripture, there's an entire book about sex. So it's not that Christians are, are prude and don't wanna talk about this stuff. The Bible is very clear about these things. And even in the Old Testament, in the very beginning of scripture, the very first book, God creates Adam and Eve, marriage and their sexuality was a part of creation even before the fall. Marriage and all of that was first, a part of God's original design is that Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. The enemy cannot create anything. All he does is pervert and distort and confuse and mess up that which has already been created. And so for us to talk about the theology of our sexuality might sound, might sound really weird to you, like a theology of sexuality. How can we have, talk about God and sex? Like The fact that it's weird for us to even think about that shows just how depraved and perverted our culture has become. Because historically, there's, there has been a biblical understanding of sexuality. It's a metaphor from Old Testament to New Testament. We are known as the bride of Christ and God extends this metaphor throughout and God created sex for the purpose of revealing himself to us. All of the natural created world around us in some regard is meant to reveal to us who God is. Do you find God in gardening? Yes. Do you find God when you go to the mountains? Yes. Do you find God when you stand at the ocean and you're watching the waves crash? Yes. Because he created it. His nature is in it. And the same is true for sex and our sexuality. God created it and he, he desires to reveal himself to us through it. So my, my goal today is to make it simple for us because it should not be complicated. His kingdom is simple. He's a God who loves us. And what he wants to reveal to us through sex is that of covenantal love that God loves us and he reveals himself to us through that. And I'll talk, share with you here in just a moment four ways that he does that. But we need a God-informed view on that. So ways that God reveals himself to us. These are very countercultural, by the way. So when, there are, when there's like friction in our mind and we're trying to decide these things, we have to understand that it's not if we've been informed by culture, but it's how much. It's how much has culture informed our thinking? How much has culture informed our worldview? And I, I hope today to show some of the core Uh, beliefs of culture and ways that we've adopted some of that so that we can pluck it out of our hearts and minds. So four ways that God desires to reveal himself to us in his covenantal love. The first one is that it's a journey of intimate knowing. And the reason I say that these things are simple, the kingdom is simple. I will tell you that it should be simple and it's also more simple than the 58 gender options the world offers. They have their own theology around these things and it's much more complicated and confusing. I personally was reading through the definitions and got a little lost in myself and had to do an altar call moment there for me to recommit my heart to Jesus because I was like, I'm eight of these. Like I want an emotional connection before sexual intimacy. Like that doesn't make, there's a term for that. It's like, this is just like humanity, right? It's not that complicated. It's kind of like a metaphor of like a, there's a jar and if you put bees in a jar, they will live happy together. They're a nice little colony of bees, unless you shake the jar. If you shake the jar, mix it all up, then they'll start to fight each other and it gets all wild and crazy. And, it, and that's kind of how I see this context of sexuality. Things are normal and they make sense. And then somebody has shaken the bee jar. So the first way that God wants to reveal himself to us is through a journey of intimate knowing, not sexual activity but intimate knowing. 
And even within our marriages, if we try to just jump to the sexual activity without the journey of intimate knowing, we're missing the fullness and the richness in which God intends sex to be. If we, just re, if we just jump over to the sexual activity part, but there's not been emotional connection or emotional intimacy or a knowing one another, we're missing the purpose of it. Because one can be intimate without there being sexual activity. It's a knowing of one another. And God desires to reveal himself to us through that. He wants us to go on a journey of knowing him intimately. So it's a, it's a mirror of our relationship with God. And even the fact that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, the Bible says that they were, they were together, they were in the garden, and they were naked without shame. There's an intimacy there, an intimate knowing. Remember, they're not like, turn the lights off. I need to grab my towel. There's, an, and there's a comfortableness that comes from being on a journey of intimate knowing. And, and God's desire for us is that we grow in our walk with him, that we grow in our journey of knowing him more. The second thing is faithfulness. And God is always faithful to us. And, and sex is designed to be within a marriage that is one that is based on faithfulness. And there are times in our walk with God, part of that journey is that we're not always faithful. Sometimes we veer. There's a whole book in the Bible that has this analogy of, the Bible says this, not me, of a whore who leaves her first love and whores after other things. And I think we like to identify with the one who is over here, but God is like, nope, you are often the whore who leaves your first love and pursues other things. And in the meantime, God is always faithful. God never leaves us. God never forsakes us. God is always faithful. And God desires that we are faithful to him. He wants our faithfulness. So one of the ways that God reveals himself to us through our sexuality is that of his faithfulness and calling us to be faithful to him. And the third thing is mutual sacrificial love. Our relationship with God is is mutual sacrificial love. I could never give what he gave. He gave the very best. He sacrificed his son, Jesus, on the cross for the forgiveness and the payment of my sin, so I don't have to pay it myself. And in return, I sacrifice my life. I am called to follow Jesus. I am called to pick up my cross and follow him. There are lots of things that my flesh desires that I don't indulge in because I'm following Jesus. And that's a counter-cultural message because here's one thing I know is that the flesh can be insatiable for all things sin but there's a mutual sacrificial love to say, I'm not gonna go after those things because I'm going to be faithful to the one who is faithful to me. Mutual sacrificial love. And when we understand these things in the context of marriage, it deepens our marriages. It strengthens our marriages. Our marriage has gotten stronger. The more we understand that, that my role as a spouse is to be mutual, is, is to be loving in a sacrificial kind of way. The more I can love him sacrificially, the more he loves me sacrificially, the deeper and stronger our marriage is. And that's a, that's a mirror picture of God's love for us. It's not necessarily a selflessness because Jesus says, if, if this is a mirror of Jesus' love for us, he says, no, you don't take my life. I willingly lay it down because I love you. There's a mutual sacrificial love. Love at its core is, it, it involves sacrifice. And in hookup culture, that does not exist. And the fourth thing, and by the way, we need all four of these pillars. If you want to think of them as pillars of ways that God reveals his love to us, we need all four of them. You cannot have two or three or just one of them. We need all four of these. The fourth one is a passionate, passionate, y'all. Not mundane, not methodical, not like brushing your teeth or checking the mail. Passionate. Celebration of covenantal love. Part of when we come together on Sundays and we, we worship is that, is that we are celebrating God's covenantal love with us. We're celebrating that with passion. That he has a covenant love with us. There's a difference in, in covenant love and contractual love. Covenant love is God's design for us within a marriage that there is a covenant there. And covenant by design is to enlarge our lives. In the beginning with with Adam and Eve, he told them in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. There's an enlargeness that comes from that. Covenant is to enlarge our lives. Marriage is to enlarge our lives. 
to bring God's kingdom to earth, to expand God's kingdom on the earth, be fruitful and multiply. In contrast, if there's a contractual marriage, contract by definition means to make smaller. Make smaller. So if you don't fulfill these things, this is off. That's a contract. It makes things smaller. The, the, the two or the one becomes two now. It's smaller. And so when a married couple has sex, this is a passionate celebration of their covenantal love. Every time a married couple engages in lovemaking. It is not just a sexual act. They are reaffirming their marital vows to one another. That's part of the purpose of sex, part of God's gift of sex to us. It's a commitment, a recommitment of vows already made. The interesting thing about the, the world's message about sex is that it's sold to us as though it will save us. It's, it has this glitter on it as though it has the power to liberate us, that it will redeem us, that it'll set us free, that it'll save us. That's why the chapter in this book says, sex, will it save? Sex was never designed to save. You will never find redemption in sex. You will never be free in pursuing freedom in your sexuality. It wasn't designed for that. What it was designed for was to show us God's covenantal love for us that we see through a journey of intimate knowing, his faithfulness, mutual sacrificial love, and a passionate celebration of that covenantal love. That's the purpose of sex. And it's important that we have a picture of what that looks like so we know what it is we're, we're working towards, what, what it is we're growing towards in our life. In, in this book, it talks about some of the um, lead thinkers or philosophers of the time that really carved out why the world thinks the way they do about sex. And we could talk about this for weeks. Lena said no to sex in the summer but you stay tuned for 2024. Because we could go back and you could look at the influences of Freud. You could look at the influences of um, all of these other people, even some people that they're talking about recently is that of Alfred Kinsey. Uh, There's Margaret Sanger. There are all these people that wrote a lot of literature about sexuality and it was always cloaked in this very religious language, even using words like salvation and worship. And yet these people are far from God. And tell us that we'll find freedom and salvation when we're truly sexually free. That you find your identity, the core of your identity, according to the world, is that you will find your identity in your sexuality. And that you can only really find that when you are free. That's contrary to Christian living because as a, as a Christian, I belong to Jesus. So there's a clash of worldviews here. The mission statement of culture says to do thy own will. You might find it interesting to know that that's also the first tenet of Satanism, to do thy own will, to do thy own will. Culture says, your body is yours, my body, my choice. The culture says, you can do with it what you please. And in fact, a lot of these people that I mentioned, Kenzie, Singer, Freud, all these people, what they would also teach is that we are sexual beings and any denial of your sexuality is harmful to your being. A teaching that if you deny any of your freedom regarding your sexuality, that it's harmful to you. That's why there's this push towards freedom regarding sexuality. And especially if there's any kind of morality or religion or tradition or family values that prohibit you from being truly free sexually, then that is the enemy. And we see that being played out in our culture now. But I would like to suggest a new slogan to us about us. And it is this, it is God's body, God's choice. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, you say the food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our bodies were not meant to be sexually free. Our bodies are meant to honor the Lord. God's body, God's choice. God is the designer. God is the definer. 1 Thessalonians says it this way. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's a nice, word, a nice way to say grow. He wants us to grow. He wants us to grow in our journey of pursuing him and knowing him intimately. He wants us to grow in, in being faithful to him. He wants us to grow in our sacrificial love for him. He wants us to grow in our celebration of his covenantal love. Those are the ways in which he wants us to be sanctified. And then it says that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. First Corinthians says it this way, flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? So for those who are born again Christians, you have invited God into your life to be Lord of your life. And you have invited the Holy Spirit into you. This is true for you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This scripture alone is completely contrary to culture's message. And so we need to embrace that. From the very beginning of scripture, Old Testament, the Israelites are being called out and going into a new place. And God tells them, don't live like them. They were sexual deviants. If I told you all the things the Israelites were doing, y'all, y'all would be like, wow, this girl is crazy, but it's in God's word. Like they were sexually deviant, crazy people. And God is telling his people, the Israelites, God is saying, don't live like they live. You are called to be set apart. You are called to be different. You are called to be holy. Part of our history as Christians is that we are set apart, that we live differently in regards to our sexuality. And then, and then that message is reaffirmed throughout the Old Testament, and then it's mentioned in almost every single New Testament book as well, how we should live in regards to our sexuality. We are to honor God with our bodies. I thought about having a, a tower of cupcakes up here, and I imagine them with blue frosting, like some of those good H-E-B cupcakes with the good frosting, none of that whipped cream stuff, like the good cupcakes. Because if I had it my way, And if I'm just to pursue what I want, I am not just going to eat a cupcake. Like I'm going to eat all the cupcakes. Because the thing about our flesh is that it has an insatiable desire for things that feel good, taste good. It's insatiable. First Corinthians says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A question I've asked myself a lot as I've been studying for this is, are we different? Are we different than the world? Are those who profess Christ and, and, and have invited Jesus to live in their heart, are they different than the world? Or are we even engaged in some sin that even people who are far from God would not tolerate? And I think as a church, we need to be honest about ways that we've compromised our faith in regards to our sexuality. And that's not to shame and it's not to condemn, but it's to call us into right standing with God. The world says, do what makes you happy. Do your own will. Do what makes you happy. You know what's going to make me happy? I would destroy my own life. I would implode. I would eat the entire tower of cupcakes. That's what would make me happy. Sometimes what would make me happy would also land me in jail for murder. (laughs) So I can't do what makes me happy. I need to do, and you need to do, what makes us holy, what makes us faithful. At the end of our life, our goal is for God to be like, well done, my good and faithful servant. God is not going to care about our happiness. Nowhere in scripture is God going to be like, well done, you are happy and fulfilled. Our goal is not happiness. Our goal is holiness. To do what makes us righteous, not perfect, but surrendered. Surrender to God, surrender to his plans for us, surrender to his design for our life, surrender to his lordship. Doing what makes you happy will leave you with a tummy ache, leave you with 10 pounds, leave you with a headache and a heart full of regret. I have the right to eat those cupcakes, but it's not going to be good for me. Today's happiness is tomorrow's regret. Today's sacrifice, though, is tomorrow's holiness. So we sacrifice today. There's that mutual sacrificial love. That sacrifice is tomorrow's holiness that pleases God and living a life of faithfulness. Do what makes you happy actually breaks down very quickly. It breaks down in the face of an abuser. You may not do what makes you happy. Like that, it breaks down. Do what makes you happy does not work in my marriage. I'm like, Landon, please don't do what makes you happy. I am what makes you happy. (laughs) Begins and ends right here. You know, that's it. He would never say to me, do what makes you happy. No, he will be who and what makes me happy. Not free, not free. We are committed in a covenantal relationship. There are boundaries around that. 
And those boundaries are a gift. And God has the authority to define those boundaries. We established last week that I am not a good Lord for my life and neither are you. Because we do things like swallow our own gum, choke on our spit, kill plants, take wrong turns. We're not the best candidate to define these boundaries. God is much better at it. So let's let God define these boundaries for something as weighty and as important as sex. We need to learn that God has provided for us. This is, I think, a a mentality to accept that God has provided for us the best, the healthiest, the safest, and the most fulfilling picture for sexual wholeness. And it's different from and counter to and more beautiful than the dominant cultural beliefs that we live in every day. Because God's authority for our lives, it's for protection. It's for provision. It's not for limitation. He's not trying to keep us from anything. He's he's trying to provide what's very best for us. And I think that what is helpful to us as we live this out is that we have a picture of what that looks like. So the rest of my time today, I really just want to share with us and clarify what is that picture? What does it look like? And, And there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who love to do puzzles and then there are people who don't love them yet. There was a time in my life not too long ago where I would have rather, I would rather do anything than do a puzzle. I would rather stab my eye out with a dull pencil. I would rather pull weeds. I would rather go to a women's conference called Sparkle. I would rather do anything than to do a puzzle. (laughs) And then one day I was like, I think I want to do a puzzle. And then I just had just the most delightful time. And I was like, look at me, I'm a puzzler now. And Lennon's like, who are you? So I got a birthday present from him and the kids. They got me this puzzle. You probably can't see it, but if we're, if we're social media friends, you've already seen it. The kids said they wanted to get this one for me because it has all of my favorite things. It has all the outdoorsy stuff, not the sparkle conference and the nail salons, like, you know, things that I would love. There's kayaking, there's boating, there's a camper, there's a campfire. There's, uh, I'm not really into fishing. We'll let that one go. Tubes, animals, flying kites. How fun is that? Rock climbing, there's mountains, uh, picnics, watermelon, a baseball glove. Are you kidding me? It's the best puzzle ever. Cupcakes, little, little raccoon friends, and there's a mama bear. There's a volleyball. Like, this is fun. Fun. I just, I love it so much. I'm falling in love all over again. In fact, I took it to the staff retreat because I was in the middle of work and I showed up with it all like wrapped up in a towel and Landon's like, who are you? I'm a puzzler, Landon. I'm I'm becoming this person. But I would never be able to do this puzzle, first of all, if it didn't have lots of different colors because I'm just not that smart. Also, I could not do this puzzle without the guide. I needed a clear picture for what it was supposed to look like. And the way life works is that we get a few pieces of the puzzle at a time as we grow up. We learn a little bit about gender. We learn a little bit about marriage. We learn a little bit about family. We learn a little bit about sex. And we're looking for the ways that it fits into the piece as a whole. And what the enemy has done and and what culture is peddling is a chopped up version of this guide where they've just taken a knife to it and they've cut it into all these different pieces. You know what? We're going to redefine marriage. Let's cut that out. And we're going to redefine gender and let's cut that out. And we're going to redefine what family is. And we're going to take sex out of the equation in our relationship with God. And we're just going to piece it all together and make a mess out of it and then here we are with the pieces trying to figure out how it all goes together but we've removed sex sex is important in the picture of a whole we've we've taken out gender when God designed us male and female and it reflects the very nature of who he is but yet we don't know how it fits in and sex is supposed to be within the context of a marriage and yet we don't see that we don't understand how it fits and God's design and how he reveals himself to us through family, through joyful submission and obedience and authority. We learn those things within a family. The world is coming aggressively against the things that God has designed that create the picture for us. This creates, God has provided a picture for us and it's found in his word. If you want to know what God says about sex, read his word. If you want to know how to navigate sexuality and all of the things in culture, read his word. It's very clear. There are some things in scripture that we could have an honest debate about. I'm really tired of talking about women in ministry with people online. Like I can't do it anymore. 
I know what God says about it. I understand some of the Pauline scriptures. We're good. There are, but there's a, there's a legitimate debate there for people, and I understand why they end up on one side of the argument. But we need to know and we need to understand that God's word is consistent and clear throughout scripture regarding our sexuality. It is not unclear. It is not vague. It is not ambiguous. It does not contradict itself. Never, not once. His word is clear, and it is good for us. And in fact, when we talk about truth, so if this is truth, if God's guide for our sexuality is that of truth, don't want to lose 2,000 pieces up here. (laughs) If his guide for us is truth, and we use the word truth, why is that word so triggering? The whole, like, what is a woman conversation? Well, what is truth? And people would, like, lose their mind over it. When you bring in the word truth, I think Augustine said it well when he said, men love truth when it enlightens him and hates truth when it accuses him. I don't know about you, but in my walk with Jesus, I have been accused by the truth of God's word. Because when I look inward to myself, when the world tells me you look inward to define morality, you look inward to find yourself, you look inward to find ethics, and you look inward to, def- to find who you truly are. Do you know what I find when I look inward? I find sin- a sinful nature with an insatiable appetite. For, for It would be for lust, it would be for um, justice on my terms. I don't find goodness when I look within. And there are times that what, when I, what I find when I look within, I would want justice to the point where I would go to jail. And I told some of y'all, y'all, if I call you from jail, just come get me. Know that it was justified and I was just making wrongs right. <laughs> but I read God's word and it convicts me of the way that I want to live because it tells me to forgive people when I don't feel like forgiving. And it tells me to pick up my cross and follow Jesus when sometimes I want to do something different. And it calls me to be patient and it calls me to be loving when I want to demand that things are done my way on my time. It's a laying down of my life. And and this truth from God's word conflicts with what my natural self wants. It has accused me. I have felt accused by God's word. Anybody else? So we love it when it enlightens us and we hate it when it accuses us. But our job as Christians is to conform our minds to God's word. And where there is friction, where we struggle, we need to grapple with it and sit with it and ultimately surrender to God's way for it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world doesn't just laugh at Christians. They are trying to, to... make a biblical worldview actual hate speech. And they're no longer teasing kids, calling them Bible thumpers. They're calling them hateful and, and homophobic and awful things that just aren't true. Because it seems like foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And some can say when it comes to truth, that it can be hateful, that love is love. And how can we ever accuse anybody? Love is love. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, a part of love is truth. The Bible says that truth does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. How could we delight in something that is evil and causing people to destroy their very lives? How can we rejoice in that? That would be horrible. If we were to see a, a toddler running off into the pool, would we rejoice for them? No, it's leading to their destruction. We, we would bring truth to that child and say, you cannot swim, come back, let's put some floaties on. So Christian formation must include cultural counterformation because of the world that we're immersed in. It's not enough just to say, hey, here's the guide for how we shall live. We need to look inward also and carve out the parts of us that are more aligned with culture than God's word. And two things that I just want to bring to light before we talk about the actual guide of it and then we're closing is that it's heavily driven in individualism and consumerism. And those two things together are destructive in our mentality about sex, even within marriages. The individualism that says, do what makes you happy. You find your authentic self when you look inward. And as we've said, that is contrary to God's design for us. What God, how God has designed us is that I live submitted to him. I am joyfully submitted to God. That is my heart posture. And as a result of that is that I am obedient. The action of my submitted heart is that I am obedient to God and God's word. 
We see this, do what makes you happy in marriages. That's the, con- the contractual part. If, if you're no longer making me happy or you're threatening my true authentic self, the marriage breaks apart or the relationship or the friendship or the church relationship, the pursuit of happiness. Happiness has just become a virtue in our society above all else. It's, it's happiness and then avoiding pain. And, it, and as the church, I think that if we're not careful and we don't acknowledge those things, then the church becomes about pursuing happiness and the church becomes about avoiding pain when suffering is key to who we are as Christians. And we can't approach our, our, our church relationship as what makes me happy because this is not a social club. It's the king, this is the body of Christ meant to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So we can't all individually pursue what is making us happy. And so we need to look inward and see where am I motivated mostly by what makes me happy? Where is that a driving force in my life? Where am I driven by what makes me happy? And where am I driven by how can I avoid pain? Because those are two drivers in that. And when it comes to consumerism, modern consumerism exploits and distorts our God-given sexual natures, promising sexual fulfillment, but turns us in from sexual beings to sexualized consumers. And there's a lot that could be said here. But I think that I will leave it, I will leave it at, we need to understand how, how it can corrupt our, our view on sex in and of itself. That we don't have a right to own anything just because we purchased it. Culture's vision for sexuality is this, it's to be true to yourself, make sure it's consensual, which by the way, I am a fan of consent also. Consent is good, but, but not all good is consensual. Just because two people consent does not make it good. Because you can have two people that are having an affair, it's consensual, but that doesn't make it good. So consent is not the, the beginning and the end of all of it. It's a high virtue in culture, but it's not in God's word. So culture says, be true to yourself, make sure it's consensual, avoid suffering, and don't hurt anyone else. These are the core values of a secular sexual ethic. And the irony to me is that pornography does everything opposite of those things. So God's perfect design for sexuality. Number one is that sex is connected to our relationship with God. That that sex is a reflection of that. It's a metaphor throughout scripture. Ephesians chapter five describes it as as a profound mystery. As us as the bride of Christ and, and Jesus as the groom coming back for his bride. Our experience of romantic love, of sexual desire, of all forms of beauty is testimony to our ultimate desire for God. Proverbs 27, 17 says, one who is full loathes honey from the comb, but even to the hungry, what is bitter tastes sweet. Our our first aim should be to be satisfied in Christ alone. Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So sex is connected to our relationship with God. We cannot sever it from the picture that God has provided for us. It's meant to be a part of it. And number two is that sex is designed to belong in the context of marriage and family. And it wasn't until the invention of birth control that sex was really, or that family and marriage was really able to be severed from that concept. It was the invention of birth control that allowed for the the free sex movement of the 60s. It couldn't have happened without that. But when we separate procreation and that power from sex, we're severing God's picture for what sex is supposed to be for. It's about intimacy, it's about oneness. It's a metaphor, but it's also biologically true as well. And number three is that suffering and incompleteness is part of every relationship, even our sexual ones. And when the world tells us that you will be saved by sex, that sex is redeeming, but yet we know as Christians that we have to embrace suffering that conflicts with the Christian worldview. And we're increasingly numbed as a society to anything that avoids pain or, or, or suffering, whether it's shopping or scrolling, food, sex, drugs, drinking, pornography, anything that numbs the pain. Christianity takes suffering serious, seriously, though, and that's contrary to the world's goal of pursuing happiness. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory to be revealed to us. So it belongs in family. It's connected to our relationship with God. Suffering and incompleteness, even in our sexual relationships, is part of every relationship. And then number four, 
a Christian vision, part of what the picture looks like for us is that a vision of the good life is always oriented towards the future. We should never expect to find full satisfaction this side of eternity, sexually or otherwise. In fact, Hugh Hefner at the end of his life, so if if sexuality and freedom and more sex is best and that's where you find your true meaning, the world would say that Hugh Hefner was an icon. Hugh Hefner at the end of his life talked about the depravity of his soul and the loneliness he suffered from. It wasn't ultimately fulfilling because sex cannot do what it's not designed to do. Jesus prayed on earth as it is in heaven. So what we are trying to do as Christians is that we are trying to bring heaven to earth. We're bringing heaven down and we are heaven bound. So there is healing for us now. There is freedom for us now. There is purpose for us now. There's forgiveness for us now. And we know that someday we'll be made a new creation in heaven. We're bringing heaven down and at the same time, we are heaven bound. It's a both already and also not yet. Because as Christians, we have this distinct understanding of eternity and of heaven. Second Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come, the old has gone and the new is here. One article I read said that the current demand for fulfillment now is not a Christian demand, a right or a guarantee. This is an adolescent illusion that in my opinion is really fed by a porn culture. So humans will never be fully satisfied on this side of earth. So what do we do in the meantime when there's this gap of what we want, what we're longing for, desires we want fulfilled, and then our current reality? Well, God's word gives us a really clear guide to this. And and I wanted to end our time by sharing this with you. It's Hebrews chapter 11. Lost my spot. Found it. Hebrews chapter 11, and actually the last few verses of chapter 10, he's talking about how do you run your race? Like, how, how are we going to live out this guide where sex reflects our relationship with God and, and it helps us see that he's faithful and it's within the context of marriage and we embrace suffering? Like, how can we live that out in today's context? How can, how can we possibly do that when porn is all around us and sexual depravity and perversion is rampant? How can we live that out? Well, God has clear instructions for us on how we run this race. He says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He says, if you have a need for endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He said, but we are not to be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and persevere for their souls. And then it starts in chapter 11, and this is a really great verse on faith. And what I love about this verse is that it's really going back to all the things that we've talked about, even starting with creation. And if you struggle with having faith that God spoke the earth into existence, I would encourage you to respond in our response time by just asking God for more faith. His word tells us that if we ask him for faith, he will meet us where we are. Because our, our running our race is going to depend on how much faith we have in God's word to be good and true for us. Chapter 11, it says, Now the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of God receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Chapter 11 goes through all of these people who through, by faith, he tells us by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. You're not going to achieve this guide for your life and your sexuality by following a set of rules. You're going to please God and live out the life that he has for you when you walk by faith. It says without faith, it is impossible to please God. It says here to draw near to God. You must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. It says by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen and in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And it was considered to him as righteousness. Consider the sacrifice and the suffering that Moses endured so that he could be faithful to God. 
never seen rain before, and yet he's told that it's gonna flood, and he's out here building an ark while everybody else is having fun and having all the sex in the world and finding their freedom and their true identity. And he's over here building a massive boat. There was a sacrifice involved that he had to have to follow Jesus. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to. It goes down, it says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Decade after decade after decade after decade, Sarah had an unfulfilled desire in her heart to have a child. Unfulfilled desires can feel like suffering to us. And maybe some of you are are suffering with desires that you know are contrary to God's word. And there are made little compromises here and little compromises there because your desires want it. And when we don't get what we want, it can feel like suffering. But I'm telling you that if we can conform our life to God's way and we are willing to walk in a mutual sacrificial love, we will see his faithfulness on the other side of it, just as he did with Moses, just as he did with Noah, just as he did with Abraham, just as he did with Sarah. It's that all these died in faith not having received the things promised. The world tells you that sex will be the most fulfilling part of your life. And if that you are not fulfilled sexually, that you're missing out, I'm telling you that is not a Christian worldview. The word word says, these died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Our homeland is heaven. It says if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You are different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world is not thinking about heaven. The rest of the world is not thinking about holiness. The rest of the world is not thinking about faithfulness. And there's an opportunity for us today as a church to be set apart in our sexuality. And that when we can be set apart sexually from the rest of the world, it's a testimony to God's goodness, to God's faithfulness, because he has better things in store for you. His guide is better. His picture is better. You will avoid pain. You will avoid suffering. You will avoid so much stuff that that the world is living in. The world is not better off with their sexual freedom, by the way. The world is more bound up in mental illness than ever before, more pain meds than ever before, more addictions, more suicide than ever before. The world is not better off being sexually free. We will be better off following Jesus, following the guide that Jesus has for us, living in the wholeness and the freedom that Jesus died on the cross to give us. Church, let's stand up. Let's stand on our feet. I got a word for you to end today. Here's going to be our response time. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Moses. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish. By the way, did you know that in the genealogy of Jesus, there are people with sexual brokenness? That Jesus himself comes from people. God is here to redeem everything in your past, every pain you've ever experienced. Anytime you've been on the other hand of an abuser, anytime maybe you were doing something, God is here to redeem all of it and to set you free. I love this part. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquer kingdoms. They're not pursuing happiness here. Happiness is not the goal. Avoiding pain is not the goal, but listen to what they do. It says they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong in weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. You gonna cheer for this part, church? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Listen to this, others suffered, mocking. You will be mocked for a Christian sexual ethic. You will be mocked. You will be told you are things that you are not. You will be mocked. It says here there was flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. This is not a pursuit of happiness. This is a pursuit of the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. 
It says they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So I don't mean to bust your bubble today, but the promise that you think sex is going to offer you, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it in marriage. You're not going to find it in pornography. You're not going to find it in any kind of hookup culture because we're going to find it someday in heaven. And that's the way that God has designed our existence, our sexuality. So it says, God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I'm gonna jump into chapter 12 for just a second because I think it ends with what we need to live this out. And our prayer team, y'all can go ahead and come on down because we're just gonna jump in to the response time. And I wanna know if there's a church that's gonna rise up to the call of holiness and righteousness and faithfulness to walk in God's way. Can we be a church that says, as for me and my house, I am going to walk in the ways of the Lord. And I'm telling you that this is an anointed season for our church to say, I'm not going to live in a pornographied world. I'm not going to live in a world that is objectifying people's bodies and sexualities because it's leaving us in a world that is broken. What we need is the hope and the light of Jesus. And how are we going to walk that out? The answer starts in chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all these people he just listed, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Church, there are some weights and sins we need to lay aside. And it's going to start with repentance. Repentance always leads the way for revival. We have to repent as the church for the ways that we've looked just like the world. And it's not to condemn, it's not to shame, it's to be set free. Because there are times that we've engaged in things and we've not accurately portrayed the picture that God has for our sexuality. As moms, as dads, as teachers, we need to accurately portray this. And when we don't, we need to lay those sins aside that keep us from doing that. And this might be a moment of repentance, not judgment, not condemnation, a moment of repentance that says, I'm going to change the way I think about my sexuality. I'm going to change the way that I think. So let us throw off every weight and every sin and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. Some of you may be experiencing a prolonged season of suffering and you wonder how long can you go on? You're struggling with same-sex attraction. You're struggling with issues of orientation. You're struggling with addictions. You're struggling with pornography. You're trying to be pure and you're wondering how long can I do this? How can I run? And friends, the answer is right here. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We've got to get our eyes on Jesus. Maybe today, this is a moment for you to say, I'm putting my eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. It's already been done for you. He's already despised the shame. There's no shame in this response time. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says this, consider him who endured from sinners hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. If you are struggling with feeling faint, or weary in your struggle with purity, this is a moment for you to refocus your eyes on Jesus. He says, so that you do not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. Have you not resisted to the point of shedding your blood? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? You are a son and daughter of Jesus Christ. Your identity is that you are made in his image. You are his son. You are his daughter. He loves you. He has open arms for you today. And he is here to meet you right where you are. I'm going to end with a time of prayer. And you're welcome to go ahead. You can come down now. You can come with, a, with your spouse. You can come with a partner. You can come with a friend. But our prayer partners are ready to pray with you. This is a time, church, where we can repent to Jesus. We can make a commitment in our hearts that as for me and my house, I am going to serve the Lord. I'm gonna walk with Jesus faithfully. Even when I have to pick up my cross and follow him, there's gonna be that mutual sacrificial love. I'm gonna celebrate God's covenant of love over my life. Church, with your hands lifted high, let's just have that moment of repentance. Not because it's a condemnation, guys. We live in this world, Lord, I confess. God, we repent. 
for the times that we've been complicit with evil, for the times that we rejoiced with evil instead of standing up for what's true. Jesus, we lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. God, I pray that this will be a church of truth tellers, not only truth tellers, but God, that we're gonna tell the truth by the way we live our lives. God, for the times that we've compromised, God, for the times where we've said, I'm gonna be happy. I don't wanna feel pain. I'm gonna look within. I'm gonna define my own morals. I'm gonna define my own ethics. God, forgive us for those times that we've been driven by flesh. And God, for those who need healing, God, where there's been sexual abuse and sexual trauma that has caused years of devastation, Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus, your anointing power right now is setting captives free in Jesus' name. Church, if this is for any of you, you can come down right now. Church, let's take ground spiritually. Come now, come now, come now. This moment is for you. His kingdom is simple. Lord, for those who say, I'm gonna gonna walk in the ways of Jesus. I'm gonna reject the guide of the world that says gender can be redefined. Marriage can be redefined. Sex can be severed from my relationship with God. We say no, and we draw a line that says, I'm going to reflect the goodness of God. Lord, we, we, we just surrender this moment to you. God, we surrender it to you. We lay down our own lives. God, we thank you that healing is here. Church, the band is gonna lead us in a song. We're gonna sing, the kingdom is simple. And I don't want you to miss this moment. I don't want you to miss this moment to say, I'm gonna recommit to purity. I'm gonna come down for healing. I'm gonna come down for salvation. I'm gonna come down for repentance. I'm gonna come down to say, make a commitment to say, I'm going to live this way, church. Don't miss, this is the most important moment for you right now. I don't want you to miss it. So Jesus, would you bless them? Would you anoint them as they respond to your word and to truth today in Jesus' name, amen. Church, you're free to respond. There's also communion on this. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Church Podcast. If God used this message to impact your life, Tell us your story by emailing mystory@thepurposechurch.com. Be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website at thepurposechurch.com to get connected and receive all the latest information.